of my earliest memories is an episode of Sailor Moon where like Sailor Moon is like just crawling around and like then just looks at the camera and is like, hey, has anyone seen Luna? Which is her cat. And I remember as a kid being like, what? You're asking me this? Um, no, I haven't. But th thanks, thanks for letting me know. We're all in this together, Sailor Moon. Uh, it's a great episode. Anyway, uh, hi, I'm Joe Hill. I'm a writer based in Chicago. I write mostly science fiction and fantasy type things. Joseph Allen Hill's fiction has appeared in liminal stories and multiple times in Lightspeed. His 2016 story, The Venus Effect, an ecstatic intertextual romp across various sorts of science fiction, which managed at once to be hilarious, academic, operatic, and deeply moving, was one of my favorite stories from the past several years. Critic Abigail Nussbaum, in explaining why she was putting it on her Hugo ballot, said this, It's not an exaggeration to say that stories like this one are why I keep doing this. Rooting through hundreds of short stories on the off chance of happening on one by an author I've never heard of that completely blows me away. Right, because I didn't want it to just be police shootings of unarmed black men is wrong, right? Because that's like, I know that's wrong. If you don't think that's wrong, a story is not going to change your mind. That to me is an understood thing. The point of the story was to evoke the feeling of seeing these things happen and not being able to do anything. That sense of powerlessness and of just repetition, right? Like, it happens again and again and again and again. There's nothing you can do. And yeah. Earlier this year, Joseph spoke with us about, among other things, intertextuality, metafiction, and the hope and purpose of art. Also Flash Gordon. And the theme song to the television show, Frasier. Distinguishing between art and entertainment can be kind of a snob asshole move, but I do think there is kind of a difference. And TV is mostly entertainment. And it's really nice, and it's really fun, and I can and have watched Frasier all day. <laughs> yeah. But... <laughs> you got the song memorized now. Yeah. I hear the blues a-calling. <laughs> Toss solid and scrambled eggs. Yeah. But I think... Art asks something of the viewer or the audience, whereas entertainment just sort of gives you what you want, you know, gives you some funny jokes or gives you something beautiful or gives you what have you. Whereas art makes you work a little bit and asks you to look at the world in a different way. I'm Chris Camerud, and this is a Storylogical Pocket Interview with Joseph Allen Hill. Uh, so thank you for agreeing to do this thing that we are doing now. Thank you for having me. It's very flattering. That That is also flattering to hear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just start a random podcast and then people start saying things like that. That's cool. I mean, I guess it's similar to being a writer, but... Yeah, I don't know. But I mean, I listen to the podcast. I mean, this is... Hearing you now is slightly uncanny. <laughs> so I'm used to hearing your voice, but like not talking to me. And now it's talking to me, and it's like, hmm, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not not dissimilar to reading one of your stories where you begin to talk to the reader. I imagine it's a bit uncanny for them as well. Mm. Uh, you see, that's a segue, but it's a segue to a point much <laughs> later in the interview that we're not to yet. So actually, uh, 
where I'd like to start is you grew up in Georgia, yeah? Oh, yes. From Georgia originally, left for college and then didn't really go back. What part of Georgia did you grow up in? Uh, so I grew up in Covington, which is a small town kind of in the... Now it's really a suburb of Atlanta. But when I was growing up, it was a lot more rural. And so it's about maybe an hour from Atlanta, 45 minutes. It was interesting, fairly rural, but yeah, not quite my scene. I think I'm kind of a city person by nature. So as soon as I could, I moved to the city. Was there anything that you missed from Covington, from a rural place? I mean, I miss the weather in Georgia. It's much nicer. And I mean, I guess I miss my family. And I mean, the town I'm from is pretty beautiful. It's very like classic Southern town. It's actually used in a lot of like films and TV shows when they want to sort of convey that. So I don't know, in the heat of the night, remember the Titans, the vampire diaries all got sort of filmed around there just because it's classic South. But I was never, I never fit in much with the people. So I don't miss that too much. Was Covington would that be now defined in our current political climate as Trump country, or was it a cosmopolitan rural type place? Oh, yeah, very much Trump country, I would say. I think a lot of the discourse around Trump and like the Trump voters kind of annoys me because I feel like I grew up around these people. And I think there's a lot of like oversimplification, just sort of looking at these people like, oh, they're they're all poor and they know not what they do. When it's like, there are a lot of middle and upper middle class people from these places who are very much down with what Trump is laying down. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very, it's not a cosmopolitan place at all. Sort of an interesting mix of, I mean, like all Southern, not all, most Southern towns, like interesting mix of classes. Because there was like an influx of sort of people coming in from Atlanta. I mean, my parents actually aren't from there. They came from Atlanta, like in the 70s, to sort of, you know, get away from the city. For the good life. Yes, the good, the good life of Covington, Georgia. And so, yeah. There, so there were other people from, from Atlanta who had come. But there was also like a lot of entrenched, I don't want to say aristocracy, but like upper middle class, southern. They'd been the, boss, the bosses of Covington for a long time and still were. And a lot of, you know, the sort of racial politics you would expect in that kind of place as well. So when you were growing up, what role, if any, were stories playing for you as a kid? In Covington, were there was it an escape? Were there TV shows or books or movies you obsessed over? It was kind of my whole life when I was a kid. Stories of different types. So I had a pretty lonely childhood, I would say. Like they're just in my neighborhood. There just weren't other kids around. I had friends at school, but they never like came over to my house, and so. As far back as I remember, I was making up stories with my toys. And then I realized I could make up stories without my toys. And I read tons of books and watched tons of TV and all that. So yeah, stories were always sort of there. What sort of toys? For me, it was it was He-Man and G.I. Joe. 
and my sister's Barbies would all mix together into elaborate plots. Oh, yes. I had, let's see, I remember my favorite toy was like a third-tier Ninja Turtles character. He was like a, a kangaroo who, even at the time, I didn't know who he was from the show, even though I love Ninja Turtles. But for some reason, that toy really spoke to me. And he was sort of the leader. And then they were like, you know, just a bunch of other like random superheroes and other characters and a few secret Barbies. Because my parents were pretty conservative, so I wasn't supposed to have Barbies, but I was able to sneak a few in on right. the radar. Yeah. You know, get that McDonald's free stuff. They only had the one choice. What could I do? They only had girls' toys this time. Oh no. When you left to go to college, was that to go be a writer and study writing and literature, or...? Uh, at the time, I was mixed. Although, I mean, looking back now, it was a pretty... I think it was kind of inevitable that I was going to be a writer. Because I was already into writing by then. And, I mean, at the time, I wanted to write for, like, TV. Like, I wasn't really into literature yet. Yeah. But I definitely wanted to be a writer at the time. And so, like, I think when I first went to college, I was thinking, like, history or something. I don't know. Well, I mean, I ended up doing classics. And when I first entered the classics program, I was going to do, like, more of a history focus. But I got more and more into literature and ended up doing more of a literature focus. Do you remember what kind of TV shows you had in mind or what you were watching at the time? I really wanted to write for Futurama. I remember that very specifically. And like comedy stuff. I wanted to be like a comedy TV writer. How did you go from comedy TV writing to studying the classics? I mean, I was already into... Like I took Latin in high school. I was in like Latin club. And we did competitions and I was good at that. And so I liked Latin. And like, there's no degree for comedy writing, right? You can kind of... And most people who are comedy writers, they'll just get a degree in whatever. You know, and so I don't know. I decided to get a degree that I was interested in, and I think I feel like there's this sort of narrowing of, like when I first started to want to be a writer when I was like 13, I wanted to write video games, and then by 17 it was comics, and then by 19 it was comedy TV shows, and then at some point movies, and then like I'll just write literature, and that <laughs> one kind of stuck. Although I would I would kind of write comics if I. Had the chance. If you could take over a series, would you do it or? Oh yeah, I definitely would. I mean, the main reason I'm not, I don't write comics is that being a, like as a career, I think comics writing is, it's not a good business to be a part of. <laughs> I think okay. it's like in terms of like the practical aspect of making money and dealing with the comic book industry is not great. But as like a thing to do, like an artistic pursuit, I, I still have a lot of fondness for comic books. I have a lot of ideas, even for like, I say for most characters, I feel like I could, I could do an okay comic with them. Most of them? Like most of all of the comic book characters that exist? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I believe heard, it. Yeah. I mean, I have, some, I have some pitches in mind if it ever comes to it. I wouldn't want to do Spider-Man. Spider-Man would be hard because it's, 
I guess sort of paradoxically, I feel like it's easy to write a pretty good Spider-Man story because he's such like a solid character. But because of that, it's much harder to do like something really interesting with him. Whereas like Superman, you can kind of go crazy. Yeah, that's interesting. I've always felt in a way the reverse, but I guess the same. That Superman would be hard to write for because it feels like he has so few weaknesses. Well, I have a lot of ideas about Superman and like what he means to to the world and what he can represent. I mean, I think at, at the end of the day, like, yeah, he has all these superpowers. And so writing like a standard adventure story with him can be somewhat limiting. But I mean, at the end of the day, all superheroes have the power that they are going to win against <laughs> the bad guy. The question is sort of what they lose in the process. And so with Spider-Man... Spider-Man is easy because what Peter Parker will lose it has been like established over like years of comics, right? Mm-hmm. Bad stuff is going to go down in his personal life as a result of him beating the bad guys. With Superman, like there are questions as to whether he even cares about his personal life. That is even a real thing. And so what does he lose is sort of the, the question that I would think of in terms of, like, writing a good Superman. Plus, it's like you can do, like, I don't know, lots of weird, zany sci-fi that's, like, fun. I think in the spotlight that Lightspeed did with you, you mentioned how you liked fiction to have a little opera in it. I wondered what that, what does that mean? Do you, yeah. I'll let you, I'll let you answer the question Uh. without asking more questions yeah yeah um i guess two things so i like i like things fiction to be like sort of big and to go a little bit wild you know like this might be one of my big weaknesses as a writer but i've never met a lily that i did not want to guilt (laughs) you know I, i never met an adjective that i didn't want to put in there or even modify yeah Oh, yes. I try to hold back on the adverbs a little bit. But anyway, um, love an adjective. But yeah, and so I like, you know, I like the sort of Baroque quality of fiction and making things sort of a little bit wild. And I think this is in part to sort of express emotion. And this goes to sort of emotionality, like opera. And I also like drama in fiction. And I feel like sometimes in contemporary fiction, drama can be a bit of a lost art i mean everyone complains about the you know the dirty realist story where people just sort of sit around and there isn't any real conflict other than just them having moderately sad lives then even in like science fiction there are kind of a lot of stories that are and i'm not trying to like throw shade but stories that are kind of like here's a person in a weird situation and they're kind of like a a quote-unquote normal person, and they sort of do kind of what you would expect of a normal good person. And that's fine. I see why people like that. And there are stories like that that I really like. But I also really appreciate drama, people acting like they shouldn't, really digging into sort of the tensions of life and relationships and emotions. Someone wise once told me that they felt like there was no distinction between genres. There were just people who preferred reading things that comforted them 
or preferred reading things that surprise them.、Mm. Do you feel like, as a writer or reader, you're always seeking the the surprising, the unsettling, the uncomfortable, and kind of shying away from things that feel complacent or comforting?、Uh, very much so, I would say. I mean, that's what interests me about fiction: is the a worldview that I'm not familiar with, or ideas that I haven't heard before, or just like. Presenting, if nothing else, even just like sensation, you know,、mm. anger, fear, surprise—all this—that's compelling. I mean, I can appreciate why people like fiction that is comforting. Like I remember when I was a kid, when I was involved with like fan communities online and like fan fiction stuff, and a lot of people would write stories that were just about characters going out for coffee. And reasonably talking about their problems, and like I totally understand why resolving that tension is pleasant, but I always hated those stories, even when I was like twelve, because it's just like I want stuff to happen. The reason I, why I watch this anime is because I like it that these guys are all angry all the time because they don't know how to process their feelings. Why are you having these people process their feelings? <laughs> If I'm going to write a fanfic, I'm going to make it more interesting by having more feelings, not not fewer feelings.、And、I think that still sort of informs like what I'm interested in in fiction. So I would say like I'm not a big like oh sci-fi genre versus like I read like lots of different things. I'm not picky about that. It's much more about being interesting in the writing and being interesting in like relating the world in. I don't want to say unusual ways, but ways that are just not that are not just the standard. This is what reality is, and we all agree, and this is what a nice person is, and this is a character being nice and doing nice things. I mean, that's I feel like that's a very insulting, reductive way to put it. I don't know. It reminded me of、uh, the way you described Covington of an entrenched feeling. You know, some fiction feels like it just re-entrenches the things that have already been. Entrenched, for lack of a better word. Absolutely, I think. I don't know. And sometimes they're like good stories that I can enjoy. It's just the number one cause of things being uninteresting to me in fiction is when it's just sort of presenting that sort of entrenched reality, or just this sense of like, this is how things are, or just like you know, like the TV version of the world. Yeah. As much as you love TV, I really love TV. But there is sometimes when I see TV or read a story, I will say that seems like television, and I will meet it as an insult, even though I love TV almost more than anything. Oh yeah, I, I feel the same way. Like I watch. Let's see. Up until I was like twenty-five, I would say that I watched more television than any person I had ever met. And I mean, if you did the collected hours, I feel I'm I'm probably still up there. I watch a little less TV now, but I still I still watch more TV than most of my friends. Cause like I mean, I work freelance, so I've I've never had like a real job, so I have plenty of time to just. I feel like making a distinguish distinguishing between art and entertainment can be kind of a snob asshole move, but I do think there is kind of a difference, and TV is. Mostly entertainment, and it's really nice, and it's really fun, and I can and have watched Frasier all day. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> you got the song memorized now. Yeah, I hear the blues a calling. <laughs> <laughs> Toss salad and scrambled eggs. Yeah, but 
there is something to be said for art, which I think challenges or asks. I think art asks something of the viewer or the audience, whereas entertainment just sort of gives you what you want, you know, gives you some funny jokes or gives you something beautiful or gives you what have you. Whereas art makes you work a little bit and asks you to look at the world in a different way. So there was this line in the We'll Be Together Forever story where the guy in that story reaches a place where he feels like clarity and communication is so important to relationships because if you don't have clarity, then people are just left guessing. But kind of going to what you were saying before about art being challenging, I feel like, and you can't see it till it's finished, that there's so much density to your language, the the symbiology and the, the ontology, you know, the, the, the intellectual and the cartoony being rammed together. It feels like you are, well, Emma in the podcast said, in danger of, you know, disappearing up your own ass, and yet you don't. But it does feel like you want to be a little challenging, you know, get the reader to do a little work. Were you hoping for that, or were you hoping for perfect clarity? Oh, no. I mean, I like, not obfuscation. Like I said, yeah, having the reader do a little work. I mean, I would agree. A lot of my work is kind of in danger of going up its own asshole. Because I love art about art, and then art about art about art. And that can go to a, a place. I don't know. I try to tether things because I think it's important to have like a real emotional aspect to things. Because I feel like if I don't, then I will definitely go into that sort of thoughts about thoughts about thoughts sort of place. You can't see it till it's finished. It's like the peak of a certain aesthetic that I was going for. It's very like dense and very much everything fits together. Like... I'm not sure if I'll ever write a story as, like, thematically dense as that again. Because, like, there's so many things. Like, even when I read it now, I'm like, oh, I forgot. Like, every line is, like, a reference to another line. And, like, it's this complicated thing. And it's like, how did I write this? I don't... (laughs) But, yeah. (laughs) Is Is that a good feeling? I mean, it sounds like a great feeling. I would... I I like my stories to feel like... They were written by someone else a little bit. It's nice. It's not definitely not a bad feeling. It's an interesting feeling. Because, I mean, in a way, it was written by somebody else. Because I wrote that, like, my life has changed a ton in the last oh, year and a half or so since I wrote that. November of 2014, 25th. It doesn't matter. My life has changed a lot. And, you know, I read that, and it kind of reminds me of that time in my life. Like, that was the height of me, like... I got really into philosophy that year. I was reading a ton of philosophy, and I think that's really reflected in that story. Like, I think in your discussion, you mentioned David Foster Wallace. Yes. And I think a lot of that similarity comes from the fact that I was like, I was really into Wittgenstein at the time. And I know he was like, like he wrote all his, his like college thesis or whatever on Wittgenstein. And he was really into Vickers. And I feel like that's the big connection there. And so when I read that, I think back to like, oh, man, that was the year I was really into philosophy and like concepts and ideas even more than I usually am. And then, you know, you can't see it when it's finished. That was like me in part processing like a relationship that the sadness from that relationship is gone now. 
but I can read that story and it's still there in the story. So in the podcast, Emma pointed out this feeling she had in the story about however much angst surrounded art. It was also really valuable in the way it connected the people in the story. And I, I, I know earlier you talked about how maybe art was your life when you were a kid. Is, is this an aspect of art that why it's important? Did you feel like as a kid, you know, you connected with the art and the art connected with you and then later you were able to connect to other people or, or just to life through art? I mean, I say when I was a kid, I was like that. But I would still say it's like that. I mean, the difference between me now and me as a kid is that I didn't really make... I mean, I guess I played with toys and that's kind of making art in its own way. Now I just write it down. But, um, I mean, I think... So, connecting with people is probably the primary reason why I write. I mean, beyond, like, you know... I've decided it's my job. Whereas, like, like, I also do music. And I'm not very good. But it's just, like, a fun thing. I do visual art. I'm not very good. It's a fun thing. And those things are just for me. And in some ways help me process the world. Like, music helps me process feelings. Visual stuff is kind of like, uh, I don't know. Maybe that one's just messing around. I can't think of anything clever to say about it. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but the writing is for someone else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I write for myself. I definitely uh, write what I like to write. And to a point that some might call indulgent. Whenever I get a rejection, my response is, the problem was that it was not me enough. So I need to double down and make it more me because like, I feel like the tendency is to sort of, like, uh, you write for other people. I mean, I guess this is a tension in writing, because you are writing for other people. You want other people to read it and like it. But at the same time, you write to express yourself. And I think there's sort of always going to be a fundamental tension between those two things. And then when you put in the sort of, you know, the business aspect of, like, trying to sell stories, it's like, did I write this story that uh, because I think this market would like it yeah and i've never had any success doing that i've only had success just like writing like a weird thing something that i don't think anybody else would write as opposed to like a good version of something that a lot of people probably could write the venus effect which came out at the end of 2016 and lightspeed could you briefly summarize that for anyone who hasn't read it which they should do but you know they might not have okay so the venus effect is about a character named apollo who is entering into a science fictional scenario and uh, he's black and as he is entering this scenario he is killed by a policeman and the quote-unquote author of the piece is surprised by this as this keeps happening over and over again with different versions of Apollo and different science fiction scenarios. And so the story is sort of going through these scenarios and uh, sort of trying to understand why this is happening both sort of within the fiction and in the real world. Which is, I mean, in the real world, I'm talking about, like, police shootings. 
Yeah, the real world we agree is real out here. Yes. In this place. Not not the one where we're talking to each other, which is in some cloud, <laughs> strange place. Um, so before I ask any questions, I want to read something that Abigail Nussbaum wrote about the Venus effect in her list of Hugo recommendations. She wrote a list of things she thought should be nominated for the Hugo, which included the Venus effect. She said that it was a story about stories and about who gets to be the hero in the core stories of our genre. It shouldn't work. The tack Hill chooses should come off as glib, and the structure he comes up with should devolve into repetition. And yet, amazingly, it doesn't. If there's one story on this list that I'd like you to read, the Venus effect is it. So, first of all, um, did you imagine when you wrote the story... This feels so weird. It feels like the question you asked somebody that's nominated for an Oscar. But anyway, I'll go <laughs> ahead with it. Did you imagine getting this kind of a response for people when, when this idea kind of locked into something where you realized, oh, I'm, I can write this story? Did your brain immediately kind of run ahead to this feeling of, oh, you know, people are going to love it. This is going to be meaningful art. Um, I definitely thought it could be really good. And I definitely, let me put this... I thought it could definitely prompt a lot of different kind of reactions. Like, I thought people might not like it. And there are definitely some people who don't like it. Uh, I thought, you know, but I thought it was pretty good. And I mean, it's a pretty, it's an idea that's very up my alley, right? Like the structure of like going through genres in a similar way. The first time I had an idea for a novel, or at least a novel that wasn't, you know, just like standard adventure story when I was like 16. It was basically that idea of characters sort of going through genres and like doing similar stuff with like the names and stuff. And that was like over 10 years ago. So I had it in the back of my mind for a long time. And then a couple years ago, I forget even which police shooting it was after, but <laughs> after one of the, like, yeah. that's glib, but it's like, well, also, so many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the perfect. I guess Joe Hill glibness. It's glib, but it's just horribly true. So I saw the Flash Gordon movie for the first time a few years ago. And I was like, this is the shit. It's one of the best movie-going experiences I've had. It's not one of the best movies. <laughs> but <laughs> no. just because I like turned it on TV randomly. And at first I was like, this is really terrible. I hate this. But I kept watching it. And it really won me over. Yeah. In a way that was just incredibly pleasant. That by like by the end I was like cheering as good guys won. And then Queen was playing and I was just like, This is the best. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> so I was just like and and I still love that movie. I'll never yeah. top that first experience. But so I saw that for the first time and I was like, I can write something like this. This would be fun, like a modern update on this. And I was playing around with that. Apollo, like in the Venus effect, the second version of Apollo, the basketball player, right? He was going to be the the protagonist in my head because I didn't want to just do sort of a boring author surrogate thing. So I say boring, and I don't want to do it, but I obviously clearly always want to do it. Yeah. But um, so I thought it'd be funny, and you could do some sort of camp stuff with it. It'd be fun. But it never really took off the ground, as most of my novel ideas never really take off the ground. And I was thinking, like, after that shooting, that, like, you know, in these stories, there are often, like, heroes who are, like, you know, they see some a comet flashing in the sky and they race off to 
go get it. And it's like, well, if you're speeding and you're a young black man, there are like real consequences to that. And so this has moved far away from your original question. But I just thought it was a really good idea, basically. And I thought, you know, and I had in my head for a while before I really got to it. I realized recently that I might have been, have you seen the video Too Many Cooks? I have, yeah. When that came out, I watched it maybe a hundred times. Yeah. Because I love it more than anything. Yeah, yeah, right? It's everything. It's repetition, it's horror, it's TV. Yeah, I was so, so into that. And recently I was like, hmm, did I just did I just do a version of that? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of, this is kind of, it's not a million miles away. Although I did have the idea before it came out. I think maybe it helped a little mm-hmm. in the birthing process. The midwife to the Venus effect is too many cooks. Okay. Um, <laughs> and the parents are Flash Gordon and... Police vi- violence, I guess. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, to be honest, there's a part of me, there's a part of me that thinks every story will be like, everyone will hate it and think it's stupid. And then there's another part that's going to be like, yeah, this is the one. Everyone's going to love this. And I will become the most successful of all time. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm happy that people like it. Slightly annoyed that when people don't, but not really. I'm not. I don't mind that when people don't like it. I don't like it when people don't like it for stupid reasons. What's one of the wrong reasons for not liking Joe Hill's Venus Effect? When I talk about sort of challenging the reader, like I know that like it's like the repetition can be like a little much, and like the sections are pretty long. I mentioned this in like the Lightspeed interview I did. Like, there's a version of this story that's like 2,000 words in and out. You get the idea, and it's done. Whereas this version is like 7,000, 8,000 words, something like that. Nine thousand, I think. Nine. Woof. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe some edits. It, it just keeps going up. That's the yeah. magic of the story. It'll be longer the next time I read it. And it has this sort of grind to it. Like you know what's going to happen, and it keeps going. And I really like that grind. And some people don't. But I actually, I don't mind. If people don't like the grind and are just like, it's not for me, that's fine. That's a weird way of asking your question of what's the wrong reason by me giving a reason that I think is the right reason. Like the right reason to not like it is that that grind, like I like to ask people, but if people don't want to, people don't like that request, it's fine. I get it. I imagine that there have been stories that I would have loved if I had given them more of a chance that I haven't. So whatever. Yeah. But I guess the wrong reason, or the reason that sort of bugs me, is that there are definitely people who have taken a very simplistic understanding of what the story is about in terms of politics and then criticized it for having a simplistic message. And it's like... That's on you. <laughs> like, right. If that's all you get out of this, it's not my fault. Was that question of, am I being too political? Is it being too simplistic? Am I just saying something I already believe? Was that some, some tension in the story where you wanted to push yourself to something more than oh, you yeah. already knew? Definitely. Because I think, right, because I didn't want it to just be police shootings of unarmed black men is wrong, right? Because that's like... I know that's wrong. If you don't think that's wrong, a story is not going to change your mind, right? Like, it's not. And so, and I didn't want it to be like, people who already know it's wrong read this story and, you know, pat themselves on the back. I guess that's like, 
the inverse of what we were talking about before. That's like the wrong way of liking it. Yeah, I agree with this story. It's great. Exactly. At the end of the day, my goal in the story was to capture a feeling. Primary Girl was not to say police shootings are wrong. That, to me, is an understood thing. The point of the story was to evoke the feeling of seeing these things happen and not being able to do anything. That sense of powerlessness and of just repetition, right? Like, it happens again and again and again and again. There's nothing you can do. And yeah... You mentioned intertextuality before we started talking about the Venus effect. Why do you love it so much? Why do you love your story being in conversation with other stories? It's fun. I mean, it's a little bit show-offy. Sometimes I wonder if I'm just showing off. You know, like, oh, I've read a lot of books. Yeah, I hey, watched have you a read lot these of TV. books? <laughs> yes, I know a lot of things. Would you like to know these things that I know? Hmm. Congratulations, you also know these things. But I guess, I mean, for the Venus effect in particular, I think the intertextuality was important to me because part of what the story about to me is sort of, or at least some, maybe not what the story's about. What I was grappling with while writing it is kind of like, what's sort of the point of doing this, right? Like, no one's going to knock it shot because I wrote this story. So what's the, the point of doing this? Mm-hmm. And... I guess in that process, I ended up thinking a lot about like sort of classic, I think, 70s metafiction, which is something I've always sort of enjoyed, like John Barth, Gilbert Sorrentino, Borges, um, Italo Calvino, those guys. And think about that stuff is that it is just like really fun for me, but there's not necessarily a lot there emotionally, right? Like, mm-hmm. I like Borges a lot, but there aren't really, like, real feelings in his stories. It's mostly just like, I am a man in a library. Let me explain some ideas to you. (laughs) Yeah, right. I have infinity in my basement. Let's think about that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so I've always been attracted to that as, like, fun, but also, like, being aware of its limits in terms of, like, this is not actually affecting the world. But at the same time, I think part of what appeals to me about metafiction is that it is, in its own way, it's more honest and true than regular fiction for a certain definition of true, right? Because yeah. when a story is telling you it's a story, that's true. Like, it is a story. And there's something, even when I was a little kid, something about like characters on TV sort of turning to the camera and talking to you and saying, hey, what's up? And it's like, they're, they're talking to me. Right. Like, yeah. And in a way, they're really talking to me. I don't know. Like, one of my earliest memories is an episode of Sailor Moon where, like, Sailor Moon is, like, just crawling around and, like, then just looks at the camera and is like, hey, has anyone seen Luna, which is her cat? And I remember as a kid being like, what? You're asking <laughs> me this? Um, no, I haven't. But that, thanks thanks for letting me know we're all in this together, Sailor Moon. Uh, it's a great episode. Anyway, um, so that tension in, in terms of like a lot of metafiction is just kind of an intellectual game, whereas I think metafiction does has a, have a capacity to connect to a reader in a very real way was something that was on my mind a lot writing the story. 
it was fun to sort of play around with these sort of famous, like reference some authors and, you know, throw some lines in. And then there was a reference to Grant Morrison because I kind of feel like I stole that last bit directly from a comic he wrote like two years ago, but not exactly. Hmm. But you know, there was a comic, what was it called? Ultra Comics. It takes the premise that like you are the superhero in that kind of second person way. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it was a very interesting Grant Morrison-y comic that was very much like, it kind of tied the thing together, right? Because that last part was like, you know, how do I end this story? Yeah. I have these ideas and it's like, oh, what if it's you? Perfect. I know, so, so what did that, because it wasn't just you, the you is the cop at the end of the story. Why did you decide to end it? You know, that of all the things you've done in that story, you decide at the end, well, I'll also change point of views. I think that ties into more the political message because there's nothing that Apollo can do to stop what's happening to him. I mean, and the thing is, each cycle of the story, like the intention is to solve the problem. And so just putting you in Apollo's shoes, there's no reason why that would solve the problem. You would experience what he experienced, but not stop it from being shot. But then if you're in the the cop's mind, there's a choice there to an extent. And so that was the thinking behind that. Yeah. Yeah, I loved what you said about Sailor Moon. Uh, Well, and the last thing you said, but it's all going to tie together. Um, Because I did feel like the intertextuality, I felt like reading The Venus Effect, I felt like there was a sense that that you, the imagined person writing the story, Apollo, everyone else reading the story, and like all of art possibly ever was somehow all in it together. Mm. So that, yeah, it was cool. (laughs) It was cool. Um, So to finish these things, I, I have a questionnaire that is kind of adapted from James Lipton, who did this thing called Inside the Actor's Studio. I don't know if you ran across that in your hours of TV watching. I'm not a big fan, but I'm familiar with it. But it's 10 questions, and I'm just going to ask them. What is your favorite word? Uh, hypnagogic. What is your least favorite word? Darkly. What is your favorite smell? Um, Indian food. What is your least favorite smell? Body odor. What do you wish you knew more about? There's so many things. <laughs> everything (laughs) okay well that will make answering this next question hard what do you wish you knew less about um the lore of mortal combat (laughs) all right uh let's pretend for a moment your life has a soundtrack off the top of your head tell me three songs that would be on it that's rough well you got it right you got a challenge uh, just in general, like if, if there was a specific scenario, I could do it easily. Okay. Um, uh, first kiss, last day of your life, um, and what's the third one? Uh, winning. I don't know. You won. Winning. <laughs> you won. You won. <laughs> oh, so many songs. Okay, so "Lovers in the Backseat" by Solange for first kiss. Uh, last day of my life. Red dress by TV on the radio and winning. Winning should be red dress by TV on the radio. 
And then, what's a good set? Oh, uh, Salisbury Hill. <laughs> Peter Gabriel. <laughs> Excellent. Um, what is your favorite kind of story? Story that is, let's see, lyrically written and which creates its own sort of conceptual framework. Conceptual grammar, I should say. What is your least favorite kind of story, then? Stories where robots revolt against humans. That's not how robots work. (laughs) Uh, All right. Uh, William Faulkner, he said that there was only one thing worth writing about, which was the human heart in conflict with itself. If William Faulkner came back from the dead to write the story of your life, what do you think that story would be about? The conflict between living in the world of ideas and living in the material world. That's good. You worked in a reference to Madonna there at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I like that that one. (laughs) All right. Um, Well, thank thank you. Thank you for being on Storyological. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Okay. okay. It's okay. Mm, okay. Yes. No, no, no. The silliness is 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 encouraged. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I feel like I say material world a lot. I never connected <laughs> it to Madonna. I don't know. I don't know if I have it either. Just something about this interview. It primed me. You know, I was ready. My mind was open. All connections are valid. You can follow Joseph on Twitter at Joe Hill of Earth 2. That is Joe Hill of Earth and the number 2. You can find a version of this interview featuring informative footnotes and an illustrious illustration of Joe Hill by our very own E.G. Kosh at our website, storylogical.com. While at our website, be sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast and check out our past episodes and interviews of particular interest, perhaps, those episodes in which we discussed Joseph Allen Hill's stories. Look for links to those episodes in our show notes. You can find and like us on Facebook at facebook.com storylogical. You can follow us on Twitter at storylogical. You can follow me on Twitter at Kuvals, and you can follow E.G. Kosh on Twitter at you guessed it, E.G. Kosh. Storylogical is sponsored entirely by our love of short stories. If you want to support us in sharing that love, there are a few ways you can do that. One, you can rate us on iTunes. You'll find a link for that in the show notes. Two, you can share an episode you love on social media and be sure to tell people why you love it. Three, you can pick one person in your life that you think might enjoy our show and tell them, hey, there's this one podcast you might like. Thanks for listening, readers. Happy reading. But yeah, um, I had different. Uh, I had a different point. Could you repeat the question? That's something I was going to say. Sure. Uh, I don't know why I'm saying, uh, I have most of it written down. I can just <laughs> pick it up and read it. But, you know, we're performing. I'm, I'm pretending yes. that this is all off the top of my head. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs>